0: Here we go! Neutron proton mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, tragic radium, if you're always your molecule molecules spontaneous combustion. Pow! Law of death, proportion gain, ink weight, I'm every element around.
1: Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina barber Graaff. Today we are in the Digital Media Center here at Western Washington University, and we are talking with my good friend, Dr. Robin Codner, and we're gonna talk about ski to sea algae. So welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on, Gina. So I wanted to to bring you on mostly because I've been meaning to for a while now. Lena, our collaborator, has been on the show, but you do amazing work with like algae in the mountains and in the bay. So can you give us like a really short description of like what you do and um, your position here at Western?
2: I am an assistant professor in the biology department. What I do for my research is I'm interested in microbial communities and what diversity of Organisms there are in those communities and how they change over time, and so I started off studying them in the bay. So I mostly worked on marine systems.
1: Here, here in this bay, are many like in your in your undergrad. I other did bays. my well. I've
2: always worked on algae, but I started doing this kind of work when I was a postdoc at the University of Washington, and so I was working in this region in the Salish Sea. Okay. And I specifically started working on Bellingham Bay when I moved to Western, and then through that project, I realized that. I was actually also very interested in algae that live on snow because I spend so much time in the mountains Mm -hmm. and that there hadn't been very much work done on the algae communities that live on snow, especially using the modern DNA sequencing techniques that I use.
1: So there's not a lot of people like going up to very little. And in fact,
2: there's no publications at all on using these new DNA sequencing technologies for characterizing the communities in the North Cascades. Or really okay. the whole Cascades. So,
1: Or any other like
2: mountainy, snowy? So people have just started to publish on this work. And there's okay. like a paper from Russia. And there's a paper from like Svalbard, like up in the Arctic in Europe. And, and there's a bunch of, of stuff. Word. Yeah, It's a place, <laughs> okay. like Norway. Okay. Um, and then there's um, a lot of work done in Antarctica. Actually, okay. shockingly, there's more work done on Antarctica than there is in the North Cascades.
1: Which is maybe easier to get to
2: a little easier yeah, okay. right as if you just drive up the road for an hour and a half and you okay. can be there right from camp right you were just there i'm in the mountains in, a lot yeah so very recently i originally started doing this work in marine systems but now i've been putting a lot of effort into studying them in the mountains
1: yeah so we're going to come back to that we're going to come back to this idea of like this process even from like the mountain to the bay and, but you, I just want to bring this up because I like to use the beginning of our show to kind of humanize scientists because uh, we're very scary to people sometimes. Yeah, um,
2: I'm, but... a, I'm especially scary to people. Yeah, are you very Why? scary? What's that? I'm so. In, my stature is so intimidating. <laughs> right, right.
1: So um, for our, for our listeners and our viewers, um, I'm like not that tall. I'm like four, five four, but like <clears throat> I hang out with you and our friend Lena, and you're both. Shorter than I am, so I feel like a giant. So, um, so yes, we're very intimidating for the community. Um, but you, Lena, and you, Alina, is another biologist here at Western. Um, check out our past show, um, "Science of Smells." You both were in a ski to sea team last year. Can you tell me just a little bit about this as we're humanizing you?
2: Right, we were actually on the team together for a couple of years. Um, the team was called the Wacom Women Scientists, and. A couple of years ago, uh, there wasn't enough teams in the Whatcom Women's Division to keep the division going. And so there was a big Mm. push by some leaders and leader athletes in the community to get a bunch of women's teams. And a friend of mine and I, another professor at Western, we went to the meeting and we decided to form a team. And then we pulled a couple more people into the team and we were trying to figure out a theme for our team and we realized we were all scientists. Well, let's
1: tell our listeners and our viewers about what Ski to sea is. Just. So,
2: Ski to sea is this relay that goes from the Mount Baker Ski Area to Bellingham Bay, and so it's a big event that happens every year. And it, when I first moved to Bellingham, I I didn't do it my first year, but then I felt really left out, and so I've done it every <laughs> other year because I
1: grew up here and I've never done it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so Rachel Severson and I decided to start this Walk and Women's team. And we put all these other, welcome women scientists team, and we got all these other women scientists to join us. And what was really cool is we weren't all professors, we were scientists in all these different ways. And so we had a geologist who was like a working geologist, we had a fisheries biologist who does consulting work. You know, we had a couple of professors, we had a grad student, so we had a mix of different kinds of women scientists.
1: What was your leg and like, so it goes from the mountain and you're skiing, and then ha- what's right. the Wait, so there's what's a the cross sequence? country
2: ski yeah. leg and then a downhill ski leg, mm-hmm. then a road run that's okay. in the mountains. So you like start running down the Mount Baker Highway.
1: Right, for how that, long?
2: Um, eight miles. And no, that's then not that, bad. that person hands off <laughs> to a road biker who rides for maybe 40 miles. That's worse. And then they hand off to a, a pair of canoeists. They canoe on the Nooksack. Right. And they hand off to a mountain bike, slash cross bike and the cross bike hands off to a sea kayaker. Right. And the sea kayaker finishes the
1: Right. And um and you want to want a medal, right?
2: We sure did. <laughs> um the year before, we missed getting on the podium by two seconds and it was my fault i got passed in the last two seconds of the so last so what leg. was
1: your leg you didn't
2: ask uh, the oh, answer my <laughs> leg so i did the cross bike f- okay. almost two of the three years that we did the team Okay. the 2015 it didn't snow very much there was no snow at the skiers right. so the legs got moved around a little bit and there was a mountain bike leg that ended the race and i'm a mountain biker and so i did that leg okay and that's when we lost by two seconds because i got passed at the very end
1: so you were like, the next year you needed to get those extra two seconds. I
2: did, and so I was doing the cross bike, and I was, like, determined to do well. This year I was like, I'm going to redeem myself from the year before. Right. And so I was and I was in really pretty good biking shape, so I thought, all right, this is the year. <laughs> and then in my race I got a flat. Are you serious? I did, and that sucked. And I had to decide, like, do I stop and take the time to change the flat, like to change out the tube in my... Am I tired? I mean, do you
1: have equipment for? I mean, are there people on the sides that no, help you? No, I got to do
2: it yourself. And I, I mean, I know how to do that. And I right. had an extra tube and like tire levers and things to change it. But I, it also takes a takes some minutes, and right. like minutes matter in the race. And so yeah. I rode on a flat tire for like ten minutes. Wow. On rough terrain. That was oh. my decision. I don't know if it was the right one. But you got on the podium. But we won. We, we still won third place anyway, despite mm-hmm. my slowdowns.
1: So we're kind of talking about this this idea of algae up on the top of the mountain, algae in the bay, but I want to go back to how did you become a scientist? Because we're, ta- we're I mean we're talking about like <clears throat> this women's science uh, ski to sea team, you know Wonder Woman just came out. <laughs> like I want to talk about this idea of kind of being ex- inspired to be in a field field that you know women aren't really populated in, and that's science. Um, yeah, and biology it's a little it's a little kind of complicated, but still there are, there are a lot of inequities in, in many things. So I want to talk about that.
2: That's true. And in my training, so when I did my Ph.D., I was actually... And well, where we, did you
1: do your Ph.D., Robin?
2: I did my Ph.D. at Harvard. Yeah. Um, you might have heard of it.
1: I've... That's one of the only schools I heard of when I was oh, growing up. That's right.
2: Um, that and Dub. I <laughs> did not come from an academic family, so I never in my wildest dreams ever imagined I'd end up at a place like Harvard. And this is what I always tell people, especially my students. Is when I was an undergrad, I was I feel like my my strength as a scientist is being creative, like having a big picture idea and being creative and sort of bringing things from different fields together. Like that's that's what I do.
1: I think that's why we work well together because I'm very good at organizing. <laughs> I am not good at big picture.
2: Yeah, so that's what I like, and I was always like that. I had to find an advisor really quickly because I like decided to do this on Friday, at like three o'clock. Right. And what's amazing is that I, I went and <laughs> Like this was, every
1: student. It's, right.
2: It's not just you. And this was in the nineties when, you know, search engines were pretty pretty new. And I went I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and I went to the research web page and I had to like quickly think of something and I was like, evolution. That's what I want to say. So I type in evolution <laughs> and I <laughs> press return. Super generic, <laughs> Right. Like like any good sophomore in college would, right. would do. And there was two people who came at two hits.
1: Well, that narrowed it down at the very I Totally least. narrowed
2: it down. And what was shocking is that both of these professors were in their offices on a Friday afternoon. Wow. And talked to me.
1: was very lucky.
2: And the first one was this guy who studied the evolution of physiology and mice. So mm-hmm. he had a mice lab. Yeah. At the time, I was like, not that, yeah, not. Yeah. I was kind of, not like, interested. vegan. I was like, not interested. But, <laughs> but I just thought I had to do it. So I go there, and he's like talking to him and he's like, well, how most of our research is we look at, you know, blood chemistry in mice. So how do you feel about taking blood from mice? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm out. Well, I didn't know what to say, but I definitely have never held a mouse before and I was pretty sure that I could not
1: stick something in it so you can get blood out. Oh, no. Yeah.
2: I don't think I could have done that. Yeah. So I was like, "Okay." And then I went to the second person, this woman who's her name is Dr. Linda Graham. And she studies the evolution of the transition from algae to plants. And I went to her office, and she was super friendly, very welcoming. And then she said, "Well, how would you like to boil moss in acid?" You're like, great. I was like, "That sounds great! Yeah, <laughs> I'll do that." And you're I like started... you're
1: a vegan. You're like, "I love plants. Let's do this." Yeah,
2: and I started working. She was interested in seeing what parts of mosses would potentially preserve in relation to algae structures. I started working in Linda's lab, and she was an incredible mentor to me, and I had an idea about a senior thesis project I wanted to do, and my professor supported this funny idea I had for my senior thesis project. And what was it? I wanted to look for early land plant fossils in the rocks around Madison, Wisconsin. What kind of plant is that? It would be kind of like a moss. Okay. Or a liverwort, if you know what one of those are. No. God, no. Liverworts are so cool. They're real simple. They're like the most simple plant. Anyway, Excellent. there's lots of them in Washington because they can only live where it's wet all the time. Anyway, yeah. I got to publish that research in science, the journal. As an undergrad. Right. So for for our listeners and our
1: watchers that don't really understand the magnitude of that. That was a big deal. Um, for one, not a lot of undergrads get to do research, period. I mean, if you were to go to the University of Washington, these big R1 schools, it's very, very hard to get any sort of you know, real science or research experience as an, as an undergrad, if you come here to Western, there's a lot of research that you can actually do as an undergrad. You have some undergrads and grad <clears> students <throat> working for you. Mm-hmm. But to, on top of that, to get whatever you're doing in undergrad to actually get published is huge. That's like another tier. And then to get that in science magazine is like, and then, it's you, and then you go to Harvard.
2: Then you go to Harvard.
1: Then you go to Harvard. Go.
2: (laughs) That's how it happens. Because I was so naive when this all was happening. Like I was just psyched about my research Mm -hmm. and my Linda Graham. Who and it was your idea, so that's why it was my idea. I really give a lot of credit to Linda Graham because she really encouraged me and supported me. She was like, "I think we can send this to science." Yeah. And I was like, "Whatever that is." Sounds great. We're doing (laughs) science. I, don't like, know. I didn't yeah. know the difference I, we didn't, had, either. We, I didn't either at the time. we wrote another paper that we put in the American Journal of Botany I think which is also a really great journal for yeah. plant science it ain't no science but right, I didn't yeah. really know the difference between the two like it right. didn't mean anything to me and then everyone in the department in Madison like freaked out right because they're like, we have an undergrad who just published in science, but yeah. I still didn't quite understand. So
1: you were saying, and I, I think I cut you off, that you were, you would tell people that your path to science, your path to getting an article in science, your path to Harvard, is wasn't what you were expecting, but it was all about big ideas, right? So do you tell your students, like, just stick with what you're passionate about, your your ideas, like be creative?
2: Yes. And it's interesting because since I've been at Western, I've had to find a way to give students who want a lot of the detail and the structure to give that structure to them while also creating a space for students to be really creative. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, and that's been my path, like, you know, someone let me come up with with an idea that hadn't been, that nobody had tried before and it really worked out. And so I think that fresh minds have the potential to come up with really great things. And so I try to not tell my students exactly what to do Mm -hmm. for that reason. I want them to be creative.
1: So we're gonna take a break, and when we come back we're gonna talk about like your research now and this algae that we're looking at uh, up in Baker and then in the Bay and kind of the future of that. Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking with Dr. Robin Codner about algae for our Ski to Sea Algae Show. And we wanted to talk, um, we just talked about background and we've talked about the awesome ski to see win that you had. It's amazing. (laughs) But we want to talk about your actual research. And like you were just on uh, Mount Baker collecting samples. So tell us about like what do you do on the mountain, and how does that relate to the algae that you collect in the bay? Like, what is the connection between all of this stuff?
2: So the connection between all of this stuff is really the methods that I use. So I use these, it kind of falls into the field of environmental genomics. So Sounds intense. DNA sequencing technology improved dramatically about 10 years ago, and we're able to sequence tons of DNA really cheaply. And that allowed us to, people like me, who are doing ecology with microbes, to kind of go to an environment, scoop up all the DNA that's there, sequence it, and then we have like millions of tiny pieces of DNA that we then put back together in the computer and we can say something about the community. Mm -hmm. And the reason we have to do that is we can't see our organisms. So if you wanted to describe what was going on in a forest, you would just go to the forest and you would look around and you would count the plants that you see and count the animals you see and it's pretty easy. We're kind of doing the same thing, but with stuff that we can't see. And so the way that we see it is with DNA. Okay. So that's the link between the two. And, but the way that we collect the samples are really different. Okay. So on the mountain, we scoop up snow and we uh, collect it into DNA preservative. And the other thing that we do is we can image our cells in the field using a field microscope. That's so awesome. Cool little field microscope. How big is this field microscope? What does it look like? It fits in my hand and it has like a single. um, Okay. And what's really cool is um, the company that makes these microscopes designed them to. Be um, distributed in developing nations so they could diagnose malaria in the field. So okay. you can see the malaria parasite in the blood wow. if you have a nice microscope.
1: Wow! And so, this is just a handheld like device. yes yeah. and
2: so it's really cool that that's why it was developed. But they're pretty inexpensive. And yeah, so how much?
1: I was about to say, how much do these things cost?
2: About five hundred dollars. It's expensive, but it's not for crazy. like lab
1: equipment. It's but not for lab ex- equipment, expensive. it's
2: and for microscopes, that's really cheap. Okay. And so. Um, you take a sample and you just put it on the microscope, and it it's all uh, newfangled technology. So there's a attachment for a a smartphone. Oh wow! So that you can then image what in the field what you're seeing, which is really great because it's one thing to like describe what you saw and try to draw a picture of it, but it's much right. better to just be able to take a photo. And I realized uh, a couple weeks ago that that I could also take videos. So we, some of the algae that live in snow, it had been hypothesized, go through this life cycle change where they can actually swim through the snow. And no one had actually observed that directly in the field. There's been some observations, but I actually took a video of swimming algae in the snow.
1: Well, That's so awesome. So, like, I was going to actually ask, this is an aside, we'll come back to your research, but... You just made a really good point that I hadn't thought of until just now and and how the the history of biology and, and being a biologist and, and field work and kind of categorization of species, there's been a lot of drawing. So like art and, and biology has had this huge relationship throughout the hundreds and hundreds of years, like mm-hmm. Darwin drawing and all that kind of stuff, um, um, animal species. Now that we have phones, like... Is that still taught? Do you know what I mean? Like, is that still taught in biology? Oh, no. yeah.
2: That is actually an amazing question. Thank and it you. is not taught. <laughs> and I just came back from an algae conference, and there was a woman there who received an award for art and science. Mm-hmm. It is so cool. It's called An Ocean Garden The Secret Life of Algae. Mm. And her name is Josie. I can't remember her last name right now.
1: And were these, like, uh, hand-drawn images? No, she does this
2: scanning, so she takes these seaweeds. And so algae are lots of things. Algae are super diverse. So seaweeds are really similar to the things that I study, but I study the microscopic relatives. So all of the things that I work on are actually microscopic, but this book's about seaweeds. But anyway, she did this, like, she's done a lot of work to compare her scans and her photographs with these old drawings from the 1800s. Oh, wow. Where... Scientists were originally describing these species and they did these elaborate drawings that are right. beautiful. So they're definitely art. Right. So, I
1: mean, yeah, there's and, a lot of that.
2: In, and that's in amazing. The of algae. She's
1: double checking like, what they were actually looking at. Exactly. What, if, what if they labeled it not? Correctly, I mean, they don't know, right? They didn't have a big big enough sample, right?
2: Exactly. And now that we use DNA, we realize that a lot of those ID, that a lot of those species descriptions we made based on looking at the algae, Mm -hmm. aren't actually correct because the algae can change their shape really easily, so they can look really different and be the same species. Yeah. There's also a really incredible story about an artist who works on an algae that I study that's related to Western.
1: Yeah, tell me the story because okay. this is It's a... kind
2: of an aside from my research, That's but okay it's something... We'll, we'll come back to your research. So this is the reason that I actually came to Washington in the first place when awesome. I was at Harvard in grad school. So there's a, a sort of unique group of marine algae, microscopic, that paleontologists think is the oldest evidence for eukaryotic life, the oldest evidence for complex life. But no one had actually really studied it. Very few biologists have ever studied it. And these things look like marbles. They're just little spheres without any structure. (laughs) So my whole dissertation was about trying to like really investigate that further using chemical methods and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But I really needed to collect the modern algae. But they don't grow in culture. So you can't just like order them up from a culture collection and work on them in the lab. You had to collect them in the field. And I called up everybody in the world who had some record of it being in the waters near them. Mm-hmm. And no one could tell me where to collect it except for this one guy who had seen it in Friday Harbor. What? In the 80s.
1: In the 80s.
2: I'm not kidding. Okay. So, um, so. I told my Ph.D. advisor I have to go to Friday Harbor, Washington. And he's like, okay. Long story short, I find it in Friday Harbor, and I was trying to describe the species. And I did stuff like characterize the chemistry of it and the cell wall. But I needed to just say what species I was working on. And I realized it was a different species than the ones described. So it was a new species. Yeah. And I'm not like the kind of scientist that typically describes new species. So I was like, ah, why hasn't anyone described this before? It was yeah. kind of a pain for me. And yeah, I Yeah, but you get to like name it.
1: Is it like the Codner
2: balls? Well, I did get to name <laughs> it. And what's Spheres, so cool sorry. about it... <laughs> um, is I was asking around, hasn't anybody worked on this before? Yeah. And I kept people kept saying, Oh, there was this guy named Maurice Duby who was a professor at Western mm-hmm. in the 70s and the 80s who worked on it. Wow. But he never published anything because back in those days, Western was more of a teaching college and right. people professors weren't necessarily publishing. Right. And is he still around? He died tragically in a bicycle accident. On his way home from campus one day what? in 1989. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this tragic history. Yeah. And all of his stuff seemed to disappear. And I was a grad student in like 2005 or 6 I called the biology department at Western. Yeah. Um, where's the stuff? Where's the stuff? Do yeah. you have any? And, and everybody at Western was like, no, no idea, nothing. So I was really sad and yeah. I was like, Wondering, what would Maurice Doobie say about this algae? I need to describe the species. Yeah. And I gave a talk at a conference. And someone came up to me after my talk. And she said, I recognize this algae is the one my friend Maury worked on. And wow. I was like, whoa, Maurice Duby, you knew him. It was like my first <laughs> link, finally, to this guy. Right.
1: The Doobie spheres.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was like, he was my friend and I have all of his stuff. What? And then she, <sighs> ma- she's like, I want to give it to you. So she mailed me these two big cardboard boxes that had all of his research materials hmm. that had originally come from Western and so then I received these back in Cambridge and I took the, and they were like these time capsules they were amazing And this is where the art part comes in. Maurice Duby was an artist, and he, in order to describe these things as a new species, besides the DNA, they have these little, like, intricate scales that are, like, nanometer size. They're super small. Weird. That surround one of the life stages.
1: These, like, marbly things. So they're, like, marble spheres. They look like baby dragon eggs.
2: Well, they actually produce baby dragon eggs that swim. Let's think about it that way, because there's, like, algae usually have different parts of their life cycle. And this is, like, a little swimming part and it's covered with scales. It's really hard to do that kind of microscopy. I tried and I failed, like you have to be an expert and he really was an expert and an artist in that. And he had drawn all of these beautiful pictures. And I found out later that he taught a biological illustration course at the biology department at Western. Anyway, that's a really cool story and that kind of connected me to Western way before I had any idea I would be a professor here.
1: Let's get back to your research real quick. So you're looking at these, uh, this algae and you're looking at trying to reproduce what is happening in their population. Like what are they doing and how are they interacting with the the environment? So
2: we have really basic questions that haven't been answered, which is kind of fun about the science I do. So we just want to know who they are. Yeah. So like how many different species are there? And like how are
1: microbial algae
2: of these, of these small algae. Okay. And then how are they distributed? So they tend to grow in these little patches. And so we're interested in, we don't know anything about how they disperse. We don't know how they get to where they are. And so by looking at the population structure in each of the blooming patches, we can start to learn about that. And I mean,
1: sorry to cut you off, but are these microbial mats that you're talking about? Because we had somebody on the show a while ago talking about volcanic vents and microbial mats. Is that similar or not at all?
2: They're similar. Basically, okay. the idea is that microbial communities, like, we we tend to think, like, okay, here's a plant. It's, like, one thing. But in a microbial community, there's lots of different things. And, like, in a hydrothermal vent, they, like, all the biomass kind of squashes together and makes a mat. Mm-hmm. Okay. In my system, they kind of grow in a patch. Okay. So it's not a match.
1: It's not as, like, dense as a mat.
2: It's not as dense as a mat. Okay. Exactly. But okay. it's similar in that there's structure in there and there's lots of different things that live there. Okay. So we're interested in those patches and then what I'm trying to do is because the algae on snow make these patches and they're pretty like localized they're a good model for studying biogeography of microbial communities which means do these communities evolve differently to create like diversity across a geographic area so we're using the cascades as a model for that so we're looking at and trying to collect as many samples as possible across the cascades this summer
1: what do they do for, you know, th- their environment? So these, these uh, microbial algae, like, how, how do they help their environment or hurt their environment? Or how do they help, like, the, the e- ecology? Like, right. how do they fit in?
2: So they're the primary producers in, these, in the snow. And so they support the carbon that they fix. So they fix carbon just like any other plant would. Okay. Plant, plants and algae are actually very closely related. Plants yeah. evolve from green algae and the algae that live on snow are green algae. So they're pretty okay. closely related, even though the, one, the algae that live on snow are pink colored, they're green algae.
1: Right, so again, we'll have a picture of this. I really like your pictures of these like little kind of, they almost look like, like blood vessels or something. Yeah, but,
2: little balls, yeah. Little, little red balls. Yeah. They have a bunch of pigment that, um, again, it hasn't been studied exactly what the pigment is doing. It might be providing sunscreen, But it also might be providing, like, an antioxidant, like photo quenching, because the algae are getting so much sun, they're doing extra photosynthesis, and they can produce too much oxygen, which can be damaging to the cell. So it kind of Mm. quenches that extra oxygen, those free radicals.
1: Right. So these patches are happening on the snow, and they're happening in the bay, and you're looking at how do they kind of form on Mount Baker and the rest of the Cascades? Is it all similar? Is it different?
2: Right. And so the biogeography question to say, like, okay, is there different communities on the east side of the Cascades or the west side of the Cascades? Or is there differences we can see on latitudinal gradients? Like we go down to Mount Shasta Mm -hmm. and Mount Hood and then up to the Washington volcanoes to see how those are different. And we also have samples that we've collected in Peru. And I'm going to France in a couple weeks to collect samples. So we're we're kind of broadening our, our sampling, but looking at, how these communities are related, because that's really what we do with, with things like plants. We look at the flora in different environments, and it, it tends to have some sort of geographic geographic ranges.
1: What kind of questions will that answer once you actually get a larger sample? Like, what, what, what do you want to kind of find out once you've actually gotten a great sample of everything, want, o- other than if they're similar or different? Like...
2: We want to understand how complex communities of algae form, how diverse they are, because right. the diversity of a community helps us understand sort of, something about how stable it is, something about how it functions. Okay. Um, so that's kind of a ecological evolutionary type question is how do these communities form and how do they evolve? Right. But then you also asked like, what are they doing in the environment? Yeah. We believe that snow algae, um, there's been some studies that show that they change the albedo on the snow. And so when they bloom, they help the snow melt faster because they absorb heat. Mm-hmm. It seems like we have some anecdotal evidence from Peru that they're just starting to get algae blooms on snow, which might be related to climate change. So mm-hmm. as our environment changes and warms, we might have conditions that are better for algae to grow high up on glaciers, which will be a problem because glaciers are already melting. Right. And this will increase the rate of melting if algae are growing faster. So that's like Got our it. secondary goal is to understand how they get around and what conditions are best are most favorable for their growth. Right Now, with my studies in the ocean, we have similar questions about community diversity, but the, as you probably know, the currents move around, especially in, in an inland water system like where we are in Bellingham and mm-hmm. in Bellingham Bay. It's so dynamic that you can't actually like, go to one place and sample the algae and then go back to that same place. And
1: sample the same
2: algae. Because it's the waters moving around. Yeah. So we do similar things, but it's much harder to draw the same kind of conclusions. So Mm -hmm. there we're just sort of, we still want to understand how changing environment changes the algae community structure, but because of the environment so dynamic, we have some constraints on the kind of conclusions we can make. There is
1: some citizen science
2: that you do, right? Right. So we want to, it takes a long time to climb a mountain. So we went to Mount, my lab group went to Mount Baker this weekend, but we were basically on one side of the mountain. We only had the ability to sample like one particular area. What we want to do is we want to sample as many places as possible, because we want to know how many places snow algae are blooming and when they're blooming, and then once we want to know that that's happening, and then we also want to know who's in that bloom, how diverse is it, and if it's related at all to some of the other things that we've sampled. So to do that, we've created these citizen science collection kits, and we've been, we're kind of calling it climber science or hiker science, because we are recruiting people that are getting out into the mountains to take our little sample tubes with us and scoop pink snow into them and then mail them back to us. And that's going to expand the number of places that we can sample this this summer.
1: Yeah. And will, hopefully going
2: yeah. into into subsequent years, because we in order to like to ask these questions about how climate change might be affecting these communities, we have to watch them change over time. Right. So if I can and me and my lab group can only be in a few places at once or we can only sample so many places in a summer right if we get all of these other groups to help us sample mm-hmm. then we're going to be able to get way more samples and get closer to accomplishing our goals
1: yeah for, so for our listeners and viewers that may not know this term this idea of citizen science of basically anyone anyone can go out and you know take your kit and go to the mountain Collect that that um, snow and send it to you. But there's other things like there's online. There's I think Zooniverse, which is the astronomy citizen science website where mm-hmm. you can go and you can help astronomers, cat- uh, you know, categorize galaxies and all that kind of stuff and look at images. So that, I mean, there's so many things that people can do. You don't necessarily have to have, you know. Um, PhDs or any sort of science degree. Not or at go to all. Harvard?
2: No, not at all. This is great. And I also, like, it, it. it's appropriate for anybody. So, like, folks that are just going on little hikes with their kids and it's early season and you see snow and you see pink snow patches and yeah. everyone's like, why is the snow pink? Like, right. that's a great chance to take a sample. Mm-hmm. And we're also recruiting like guide services and, and groups like the Mountaineers that are going out and like climbing big mountains to go get samples and higher up on the mountains that are hard to get to.
1: Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, so it is they, really awesome. Could people just go to your website, you know, the Codner Lab and yep. like We ask have a you? citizen
2: science tab and it says everything about what we're doing and how to get a kit and we've been putting um, calls out for citizen scientists through different social media outlets and posting on like web boards for backcountry skiers and folks have been super responsive. I'm really excited. So I'm sending out kits tomorrow to the first round of people. I have about 30 kits I'm sending out. And a lot of people who are already, like, getting out into the mountains. I've gotten a lot of responses from people who, you know, maybe have a Ph.D. and they're not doing science anymore. Or Mm -hmm. responses from people like some parents that are homeschooling kids and they're like, I'm looking for awesome things to do with my kids. Or people who are just like, I really love science and I've been always curious about... What the pink snow was, and so I'm really excited to be able to contribute to something while I'm also doing my climbing trip. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how biology, algae, how has that been represented in um, popular culture, maybe films, movies, books, um, and we're going to talk about your other um, TV appearances that you've you've told me about. Back to Spark Science, we're talking with Dr. Robin Cogner, and we were just talking about algae and citizen science. Now we want to talk about pop culture, but before we do that, I forgot to ask you about this new term in science, and it's bioinformatics.
2: So it's sort of how biology meets big data, and as we start... As we've been sequencing genomes and all of the DNA and RNA and all, we just have so much data in biology that it required that biologists work with computer scientists. and They had to. They had to. I mean, that happened to me where I was like, I got some data back and I tried to open it in Excel and Excel just like, was like, can't do it. Sorry. And then I was, didn't know what to do. And I'd be like, go to computer scientists. I'm like, what
1: do I do? Well, I think it's hilarious that you have biology, which is known at least now to have like 60% female graduates. And then you have CS, which is now known to have like 10% female graduates. Right. Um, And it's getting better. Um, The the 10% is getting higher. But still, you have these two fields in science that are having real issues with with, um, inclusion, Mm -hmm. um, at least CS. And like uh, biology, it's very, very different. But you have them working together, and I, I think it's awesome. And I, I think it's yeah. uh, so many more interdisciplinary things are happening now.
2: Yeah, it's true. And mm, the majority of bioinformaticians are male because it is so, because it is, they're often coming of that, from computer science. That Venn diagram. And I've been on grant proposals where I've been described as a female bioinformatician. Like, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, that I am providing some diversity right. to the proposal, which is interesting. But I've had a couple of women in CS and math, come and work in my lab. And somehow I attract a lot of women in my, we have like, I have like a majority woman, female lab. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome to support these young women who are programmers right. to work the interface of biology and CS, like use their creativity in CS.
1: So you're you're working with bioinformatics, you're working with this big data. Is there anything that like you found challenging going from, like you said, you were struggling with Excel and then suddenly you're like, I'm gonna work with CS now. So like, what was that? transition like?
2: That's a really hard transition. And I learned that I love computers. Wow. And I don't, I like baby program. Like I, the heavy hit, the heavy programming is done by my graduate students and by collaborators.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Um, And that's what collaboration is for.
2: Right. I work a lot with the computer scientists. I can get by with my programming skills to get a lot of the things done that I need done. I wish I programmed better than I do. And so I often encourage all of my undergrads that are interested in the kind of science that we do in my lab to take programming classes and learn how to program because okay. it just opens up a world of what you can do with your data. we talked about creativity before, like that avenue for being creative in our data analysis is blown open if you can do your own programming.
1: Right, Where, what do you program in? Like what's the programming you do?
2: Me, I yeah. mostly just write Unix shell scripts. And oh, okay. so that's what i mean by baby programming yeah. but almost all of our pipelines run on python i was just going to ask so python, it's, python is the, is thing the wave to learn. of the future every summer i think i'm in, this is the summer i'm going to learn python and then i'm like doing a million other things Can and- we do that
1: together cuz I did Python for my my dissertation, but vi- like ba- I I love your description of baby programming because it was basically baby programming. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Python is huge in astronomy now. That's like the thing to learn. Yeah,
2: that's the thing in bioinformatics too to learn. Hmm. And so, what's really cool about bioinformatics is people don't always have to be a trained like software engineer or a trained computer scientist. Right. If you come with strong programming skills and a biology background, you can put them together. And so I sort of learned on the job, like as a postdoc, I, I learned because we had some computer science technicians that worked in the lab, and I also had a friend I collaborated with and developed some software with who helped me learn along the way. Right. I learned that I really love that kind of work. But now at Western, like we have a group of faculty that are non-computer science faculty, but who use the CS resources in the cluster. Yep. And when I go to those meetings and we're all trying to like figure out ways to like create more interdisciplinary programs here at Western, Whenever I go to those meetings, I'm the only woman.
1: Well let's let's transition to something a little more happy and that's pop culture. That's what I like. Yes. Which is also male dominated. Let's talk about how our biologists and maybe even if bioinformatics has even been a thing talked about in, in movies or TV or you know, any video games.
2: <laughs> video <laughs> games. I don't know. A lot of this is really new and I and as you know I'm like kind of like not up to date on pop culture.
1: Mm-hmm not like me
2: not no. as not as good like i miss like a decade at least of movies um
1: well there's pandemic right that's a board game and it is a video game as well and it's a it's a game in which there's an illness or a virus and then it spreads or across the you yeah know, the world and you need to stop it
2: yeah and like yeah. all of that and i don't know how much they have bioinformaticians featured right. but like Sorry. all of that research relies heavily on bioinformaticians to see like which strains are similar to each other and right. like predicting how they're gonna spread. So
1: any zombie movie.
2: Yes. You know, I heard, I'll help you. I heard about <laughs> bioinformatics on my way here today. Really? On the radio, but it wasn't in pop culture. It was it was actually like kind of in the legal system. That's true. they're talking about people who are on death row wow. not being able to really get into the data that convicted them because the software that made the DNA matches is proprietary. And the companies that make the software say that's our IP and we can't share that. But then, of course, like legal advocates for people who are convicted are like, on
1: death row. That is not
2: cool. We need to have access to the data and it's not fair for that to be proprietary. There's a lot of discussion going on right now about that. I mean, and that's bioinformatics right there.
1: You were saying at the break, you were saying that there are ideas you have for a movie,
2: right? So, you, so let's so do that. I feel like places where people hear a lot about algae these days in the in the news, and I ask my students this too. Actually, what do you think algae is when they when they come to algae class for mm-hmm. the fir- on the first day? And a lot of people say like slimy, stinky pond scum type stuff, but people are starting to hear about it as a biofuel alternative. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about that algae biofuel? A it got real popular in the last decade to okay. try to grow algae to make biofuel. Because you can grow it in anything. Like, you can grow it in wastewater.
1: And it's very fast growing.
2: And it fast grows fast and has lots of lipid. And so it, it might be better than, like, using land we could farm food on to, right. to make biofuel. So I worked on that a little bit in my past. And I sat on some grant proposal panels to evaluate what other scientists want to do. And the engineers especially, because they're not biologists, they want to genetically engineer algae to grow really fast and then... M- export the the oil out of their cells so it's really easy to harvest the oil and make biofuel which sounds great unless you're an ecologist and you know that those algae if you're growing them like in a pond or in a tank they're going to get out yeah and they're going to take over and they're going to be like an oil spill everywhere and the engineers always say oh no no no, no. we're going to genetically engineer them so there's like some kill gene so if they get out of their tank right so if they get out of their tank they're gonna just die. We're just gonna push a button and they're all just gonna stop. And I was like, that's not gonna work. Yeah. Have you guys heard of evolution? Yeah. Like that's why I study, right? That algae communities evolve. They evolve really quickly. So even if you put a gene in there that's gonna make it die if it yeah. gets out of its tank, it's not gonna stay there very long. Like the, yeah. there'll be some of the algae that will. Someone's gonna get on, their, kick that gene out, their and, their and then they're gonna,
1: and then their boot, they're gonna walk off to another pond. And that algae's gonna
2: get rid of that kill gene, and then they're gonna take over the water supply, and then we're not gonna have any. So that's my idea for a really bad. I'm like when It's when, like very Jurassic Park. Yes, so when people talk about that, I'm like that is a really that is the recipe for a really bad sci-fi movie. going should take it and they better give me
1: credit. So I get I guess we have been telling everyone that we work together and we just don't say what we do. <laughs> so yeah, Robin and I, uh, we and and Lena, who we've talked about a couple times, who again Previous show, Science of Smells, check it out. We work on an equity and inclusion workshop specifically focused for STEM faculty because sometimes people in STEM don't talk about feelings or, um, you know, how to how to talk to other people. So yeah,
2: we're teaching people how to communicate and how to be open-minded and how to yeah. understand their own identities and other people's identities and... Yeah.
1: And the problems we have in science.
2: Right, and to tie it back to some of my personal goals about like really being open-minded and creative in science, I feel like creating a culture in science that's really like more open to creative thinking and like letting different types of ideas mingle together to be creative right. is something that helps our science and may helps us make like new discoveries but also helps everyone feel comfortable being a scientist.
1: And that brings us back to your, your show idea, your movie idea, right? Because if you have just a group of people who are engineers who may all come kind of from the same background and all had the same upbringing, and had the same training as engineers, and they're all like, this algae's going to be great, everything's awesome, until you have somebody who's slightly different who comes in that's like, this could kill the world. At the break, you were talking about how you were interviewed by the Discovery Channel, and, I, and you like had to find somebody's house and like watch it on cable. I, I want to hear this story.
2: Okay, so I had done a citizen science event okay. at the North Cascades National Park that had to do with Uh, characterizing biodiversity on snow. And I met a geologist there who uh, studies all the glaciers in the park. And he had been contacted by the Discovery Channel to do a show on life on icy worlds Mm -hmm. like Enceladus and Europa. and Europa. And he was like, oh, you should contact Robin Codner. She's this biologist and she's actually looking at the biology. So that's how they got in touch with me. And I filmed for two days with a film crew that was doing a show on these And we went up uh, near Artist Point so we couldn't go very far into the mountains because they had a lot of heavy camera equipment. And it turns out that you cannot do any filming for anything commercial in wilderness areas. So we, wow. the area near Artist Point is not in a, technically in a wilderness area. Wow! So they filmed me collecting snow algae samples and talking to them about about snow algae communities.
1: Wow! And then what happened after they filmed you?
2: Oh, so I needed that because they didn't put it on the web. They were spo- for me to see this clip. I had to go to a friend's house that had cable.
1: Yeah, and and like go there exact time they were Exactly. Playing. And I knew when it yeah. was going
2: to be on. And so we all went and like her family and I, we like made popcorn <laughs> and yeah. we, we watched it. And it was like a three minute segment or something. It yeah. was, it was pretty good. Three and, minutes is very long for TV. Yeah. But the only thing at the end they had like snapped, they had like rolled the camera after they told me that they weren't rolling. And so they caught me doing something kind of silly. And I was, well, I just yeah. like held up a tube of algae and I was like, I love algae.
1: <laughs> the media, they love it. I remember I wrote, the, I, I, I was in this article and I was like, yeah, go science. And they're like, go science. And that was like their headline. They always pick like, the oh thing Lord. you're most embarrassed about.
2: That's <laughs> yeah. true.
1: So, but you were talking about Enceladus and I, I want to just take a couple of seconds to, or uh, maybe a minute to talk about Enceladus and like, why, why was that so interesting? And why did they go to you for like algae and, you know, an icy moon somewhere?
2: Right. Well, so when we're thinking about finding life somewhere else on, in the universe and somewhere else in our solar system. The best way for us to think about that as humans is to compare to what we know about life on Earth. And so NASA's does uh, NASA, Axobiology and Astrobiology programs, support a lot of research that looks at organisms that live in extreme environments on Earth and try to understand how that could relate to how that life could possibly survive or evolve in a place like Europa. So Europa has a frozen ocean and we know that, you know, life likes water And we look at what we can learn about the physiology of the organisms that live in those types of environments on Earth. And so that's the connection.
1: And Enceladus had this, like, plume that one of our, um, actually, um, spacecrafts or missions Cassini went through. So they maybe could have collected some information more than we had before. And so is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share with our listeners and our viewers about kind of your work and, and how they can kind of embrace science and not be afraid of it?
2: I would say that science just is all around us, and just being curious about the world sort of leads you into to being a scientist.
1: I just think it's amazing that you have this connection with astrobiology, and you have this connection with bioinformatics, and you're kind of doing all this work that is very intersectional and you know interdisciplinary, and you've, you're just doing so much, and I, I just wanna thank you for coming here and telling us about it and teaching me all about biology, which is something I know nothing about.
2: Thank you, it was really fun.
1: to spark science, ski to see algae. If you're interested in citizen science and collecting snow samples, go to codnerlab.wordpress.com. This show was produced in collaboration with Western Washington University and KMRE. Today's episode was recorded at the Digital Media Center at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. We air weekly on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or kmre.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m. Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. Our producer is Regina Barber DeGraff. Production was also done by Darian Brown, Suzanne Blaze, and the DMC crew. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet.
0: Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think. I dye nitrate, activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Dallas, whistle, balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.